0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another installment of our senior speaker series. Um, I get the honor of introducing Dr. Ashley Rushing. Keith is out of town, so he misses out. Um, So Ashley is one of our excellent third years. She, just to give you a little background, grew up in North Carolina. She went to UNC Chapel Hill for her undergraduate. Um, she worked as a NICU nurse, so close to my heart. Uh, we've, we've bonded over many a NICU story, uh, before going to medical school at East Carolina University. And then she came up here for residency. She will be going to Virginia Commonwealth University uh, starting in July for her hematology oncology fellowship. And today we have a great talk uh, by Dr. Rushing on pediatric glioblastoma. So as per usual, We'll welcome questions at the end of the talk, um, making sure you get to hear all the, all the great stuff that Ashley has. So, without further ado, here's Dr. Rushing. <laughs>
1: okay. uh, so, good morning. Uh, can everyone hear me? Okay? No. you need the microphone? No, it's not my mic. to speak that Okay.
0: Can
1: you hear her now? Go ahead. All right. Yes. Uh, so thank you for coming. Um, so as most of you know, and as you just heard, uh, I will be entering my HEMOC fellowship um, in just a few short months at VCU, and I could not be more excited to begin this next phase in my training. While many of you also know my interest in pediatric oncology has been longstanding, I wanted to share a little more about why this is and my own personal experiences with the field growing up. When I was 13, my cousin and my best friend in the entire world was diagnosed with an inoperable glioblastoma. He was just eight years old at the time. The epitome of a boy's boy, he was constantly on the go, perpetually mischievous and always smiling. He loved people and only saw the good in them and he was such a beautiful spirit. Unfortunately, he lost his battle with cancer just six months after being diagnosed. It was devastating for my family and is still difficult to this day. But from that experience also came a very beautiful one for me. And I spent the remainder of my teen and early early adolescent years volunteering with children at the hospital, and every summer at a camp for children with cancer and their siblings. Mm -hmm. While it's obvious to anyone how incredibly brave, courageous, and resilient children are, especially in the face of such a horrible disease like cancer, As I move forward throughout my medical training, these character traits have become more and more amplified as I gain a deeper understanding and better appreciation for the pathophysiology behind the disease. Last November was the 20th anniversary of Greg's passing. And as I thought about him and where and what he would be doing with his life if still here, it made me curious and interested in learning more about pediatric glioblastoma and what advances had been made over the last 20 years. And so today, I look forward to doing just that, and sharing with you what I have learned. My objectives for this talk are rather detailed, and yet what I hope you can take away from it quite simple, and will be summarized at the end. Throughout my presentation, I hope you will notice a color theme, this acknowledging the color gold as the color for pediatric cancer. However, before diving in fully, I want to first recognize how pediatric oncology has evolved as a field over the past 100 years. In 1884, Sims Hospital was the first hospital to open dedicated solely to the care of patients with cancer. Opening in New York City, years later, it eventually became what is known today as Memorial Sloan Kettering. Several years later, the very first pediatric cancer ward opened at this same site in 1939, at a time when pediatric cancer then became the second leading cause of death in children after the advent of antibiotic therapy. In the late 1930s, the National Cancer Institute was established by then President Franklin D. Roosevelt after he signed legislation that was the first to support early research endeavors in the fight against cancer. The budget set was unheard of at the time with $400,000 allocated to this plight. Lastly, in 1940, the first American (laughs) textbook to be solely dedicated to pediatric oncology was published. It had a total of nine chapters. In 1947, the first ever remission of pediatric leukemia was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Sidney Farber. Code purple, this is a drill. Code purple, this is a drill. Code purple, this is a drill. Uh, So Dr. Farber was the head of pathology at Boston Children's at the time. Um, And in this landmark study, he reported the temporary remission of 10 of 16 children with acute leukemia using the newly developed drug aminopterin, which is a folic acid antagonist. Until this time, children with acute leukemia often died within weeks of diagnosis. Not only did it set a new precedent in the treatment of children diagnosed with leukemia, allowing them to live longer, it changed the trajectory of pediatric oncology as a whole, with more and more focus on research. In 1955, the National Cancer Institute established the Clinical Trials Cooperative Group. This group, which included the Children's Cancer Group, was influential in establishing a nationwide network of researchers whose sole purpose was to pursue a a cure for childhood cancer through the development of innovative new therapies. Realizing more and more the importance of research in finding a cure, the St. Jude Children's Hospital was opened its doors in 1962. Following in the footsteps of those before them, in 1998, the Childhood Cancer Survivors Study was established. It was the first of its kind to analyze and report on the long-term health effects of survivors. Lastly, in 2000, the Children's Oncology Group was formed after the four pediatric subgroups of the clinical trials cooperative group were merged into one. With more and more focus on cancer research, in 1971, former President Richard Nixon signed into legislation the National Cancer Act, officially declaring a war on cancer and a State of the Union address. The National Cancer Act led to a major expansion of cancer research in the United States with the development of new research grants by providing unprecedented levels of funding on the order of $400 million initially, followed by another $600 million three years later. During the late 1950s, the first successful matched related allogeneic stem cell transplant was performed, following, followed two decades later by the first successful matched unrelated donor transplant. In 1980, the National Bone Marrow Donor Registry was established. And in 2012, the one millionth bone marrow w- transplant was performed in the world. By the 1980s, the overall survival in pediatric acute leukemia increased to over 80% at five years from a dismal 20% in the early 1960s. This is outlined by the red arrows on the screen. This study, published in the late 1990s, evaluated 13 prior consecutive studies performed at St. Jude's Research Hospital from 1962 to 1997. The advances seen were secondary to the introduction of intrathecal chemotherapy, early intensification, combination for drug regimen, and improved supportive care measures, allowing for more and more children to survive the disease. Lastly, I wanted to briefly touch on the advent of CAR T cells. Now, of course, this is just a very brief overview, and really this topic could be an entire Grand Rounds talk in and of itself. However, while interviewing last fall for fellowship, it was the topic of conversation amongst almost every person I encountered and it will likely change the face of hematology, oncology, and other fields as well in the next few years. In 2017, the first drug was approved by the FDA for use in relapsed or refractory acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and is called Kimriah. CAR T-cells work by genetically modifying a patient's own T-cells to target a specific cancer protein, ultimately leading to that cancer cell's destruction. It's termed a living therapy, as it only needs to be administered once. The cells continue to multiply in the patient's body so that the anti-cancer effects persist and can even increase over time, which is pretty cool. Now that we have a better understanding of the evolution of pediatric oncology through the years, I would like to shift gears and focus in on the very topic that is the title of my presentation, Pediatric Glioblastoma. My objectives for the remainder of my time include summarizing the epidemiology and classification of CNS tumors by the World Health Organization, comparing the risk factors, biologic variability, prognosis and treatment among adult versus pediatric glioblastoma, discuss the advances that have been made over the last 20 years, and lastly, to identify future directions for research in pediatric glioblastoma. First, epidemiology and classification. While this is a very busy slide and not at all what I want to spend a lot of time on, it does include a list of some of the more common, but not all, CNS tumors as outlined by the 2016 WHO classification system. The WHO classifies CNS tumors based uh, on their location in the brain as well as their histology. Their most recent report with updated classification of tumors came out in 2016. CNS tumors are classically categorized as supratentorial, involving the cerebral cortex, infratentorial, including the cerebellum, paracellar, or your deep midline structures, the brainstem, and finally, the spinal cord. These locations are highlighted in the red boxes seen here. Brain tumors are far and wide the most common solid tumors of childhood, with approximately 4,300 new cases diagnosed each year in children ages zero to 14 years, per the Central Brain Tumor Registry of the United States. When looking at the graph here, you'll notice a red arrow pointing to the brain and CNS tumors. What I found particularly surprising through my research is that CNS tumors are even more common than leukemia and some of the uh, sub-age groups within this age distribution, all except for the one to four year age range where leukemia was more prevalent. This is also true in the 15- to 19-year-old age group, uh, as seen here. Additionally, the incidence of brain and CNS tumors in children ages 0 to 14 years has remained steady over the past 15 years. When looking then at how the brain and CNS tumors are distributed, again the focus is on what their underlying histology is and where they are located in the brain. This graph here shows the distribution of all primary brain and CNS tumors in children ages 0 to 14 years of age by histology. If you focus on the right side of the graph with the large distribution in bright yellow with an outline box in red, you'll see that gliomas account for more than 50% of all primary brain and CNS tumors in children. Gliomas can further be broken down based on their histologic grading, low versus high grade, which we will go over in more detail shortly. However, before moving forward, I wanted to point out that high-grade gliomas, which includes glioblastoma, are estimated to account for 8 to 12% of all primary brain and CNS tumors of childhood. Here we see a further breakdown of certain CNS tumors for the 0 to 14-year age group. You can see that glioblastoma, outlined in red, accounts for only a small sliver of the overall pie chart, Approximately 2.7% of all primary brain and CNS tumors in this age range. What consistently came up in my review of the literature is that the estimation of the true incidence of pediatric glioblastoma is difficult because it is so rare. Because of this rarity, many studies often lump glioblastoma with anaplastic astrocytoma and diffuse midline glioma, the two other high-grade gliomas, into one cohort. Additionally, there's not a standard definition for age of pediatric patients with almost all having varying cutoff ranges, and some including young adults in their studies. And this makes it difficult to estimate the true incidence. This is uh, the same chart as before, except for ages 15 to 19 years of age. And again, glioblastoma, um, although slightly higher in incidence, um, is very rare in this age group. As mentioned previously, the second aspect in classifying CNS tumors by the WHO is location of the tumor within the brain. As you can see, the brain is far and wide the most common location for high-grade gliomas, which is what the HGG stands for, and which includes glioblastoma. Here it is represented by the green columns on the graph and its name outlined in red. Supratentorial tumors are the next most common of these, and half of these are generally located within the cerebral cortex. We saw a few slides back that gliomas represent more than half of all primary brain and CNS tumors in children. Glioma tumor types are based on their putative cell type of origin. For example, an astrocytoma comes from an astrocyte. Gliomas are further characterized by their histologic grading, based primarily on their degree of proliferation, infiltrative nature, and presence of maligned cells. Low-grade gliomas, grades 1 and 2, highlighted in yellow on the chart, are characterized by fairly low proliferative potential. Grade 1 tumors include pilocytic astrocytoma, which is the most common glial tumor of childhood, has a very off, often has a very high survival rate, and often requires surgical excision only. Grade 2 tumors again have low proliferative potential, but they do infiltrate the surrounding tissue and can recur. High grade gliomas, on the other hand, include grades 3 and 4. Grade 3 tumors include those same characteristics of the low grade gliomas, but now with a very high recurrence rate. Lastly, grade 4 tumors, which includes glioblastoma, encompass all of these features with the addition of being obviously malign and very aggressive. Focusing in more on high-grade gliomas, and even more specifically, glioblastoma, you will see throughout the rest of the talk that these tumors are diffusely infiltrative, extremely aggressive, characterized by malign cells with a high mitotic index, and often have satellite lesions present at the time of diagnosis. One of my main goals uh, for this talk was to compare adult and pediatric glioblastoma, which is the purpose of the slide here. When comparing the two, the difference in incidence is obvious. With glioblastoma, as shown by the purple arrow, the most common malignant CNS tumor of adulthood. It's most common in men ages 55 years and older. In fact, two prominent political figures, John McCain and Ted Kennedy, both died of this disease in the recent years. When the updated WHO classification system came out in 2016, they further divided adult gliomas based on their IDH status. This slide is certainly a little complicated, however, I wanted to show just how many different subtypes there are of different glioma tumors. Looking in more detail at glioblastoma specifically, it can be divided into IDH mutant and IDH wild-type tumors. IDH stands for isocitrate dehydrogenase and is an enzyme involved in the TCA cycle of glucose metabolism. It's considered the most frequent of genetic alterations in diffuse gliomas and has been implicated as one of the first markers hit in the development of these tumors, suggesting it's involved fairly early on in tumorigenesis. IDH wild-type tumors arise de novo, are the most common and confer the poorest prognosis, whereas IDH mutant tumors often arise from other primary CNS tumors and have a better prognosis. Until recently, pediatric high grade gliomas have been thought to be the same as their adult counterparts. While histologically this is true, more and more we are realizing that in fact pediatric high grade gliomas and specifically glioblastoma are biologically distinct from those arising in adults. This is a busy slide and the image on the left more just to show you how many different subtypes of glioblastoma there are, which we will discuss in the next few slides. However, I wanted to show that what we just talked about with adult and pediatric glioblastoma having very distinct biologic alterations that are quite unique to their own. On the right is a scatter plot showing uh, molecular um, markers in adult glioblastoma versus uh, three subtypes of pediatric glioblastoma. The adult is represented in gray and pediatrics in the colored dots. As you can see, it's very uh, they are very distinct from each other. This figure here was one of the most helpful I found when reviewing the literature in comparing pediatric and adult high-grade glioma, including the distinction between infants and older children. Starting at the bottom with the histologic images, while it may be difficult to see, histologically these tumors look exactly the same, regardless of age. However, when comparing the underlying genetic alterations, You can see there is very small overlap among the varying age groups as represented by the circles here. For example, in very young infants, often there are few identifiable mutations and they are actually quite distinct, even from older children. This chart shows some of the more common molecular alterations seen in both pediatric and adult glioblastoma with the most common highlighted by age and again shows just how biologically distinct the two are. For example, pediatric glioblastoma has a high incidence of TP53 mutations. If you remember, TP53 is a tumor suppressor gene, and when mutated, no longer functions as such, leading to tumor formation. Adults, on the other hand, have a high frequency of TERT mutations. TERT is a telomerase reverse transcriptase enzyme, and when mutated, gives immortality to a cancer cell virtually per- preventing its destruction. Additionally, pediatric and adult glioblastomas differ based on the type of receptor tyrosine kinase that is most prevalent, with EGFR, or the epidermal growth factor receptor, being more common in adults, and PDGFR, (coughs) or platelet-derived growth factor receptor, being more common in kids. Both of these are upregulated or amplified in their respective age groups. And lead to signal transduction through the Ras Act pathways, ultimately leading to uncontrolled cell proliferation. Pediatric high grade glioma, including glioblastoma, can be divided into distinct subgroups based on their methylation patterns with distinguishing chromosome alterations and gene mutations. There are roughly five subgroups, each with differing locations, age of onset, prognosis, and underlying molecular alterations. Half of all pediatric glioblastomas have recurring mutations at specific histone genes, including the H33K27 mutant tumors and the H33G34 tumors. Starting from the top of this chart, uh, on the top left, you'll see the H33-K27 mutant subtype, outlined in light blue. This is the most common of the histone-mutated tumors and has the worst prognosis overall. This is most likely secondary to its most common location, uh, which is generally in the midbrain structures or in the pons. Moving to the right, you'll see the other two histone-mutated tumors. In the orange, you will see the IDH mutated tumors, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which account for about 10% of pediatric glioblastoma tumors overall. These are often located in the cortex and generally occur in older children. The BRAF v 600 e mutant tumors in purple are a unique subgroup as these often arise from low-grade gliomas and have a higher incidence of recurrence. The remaining three mutated tumors highlighted in red include the PDGFR amplified tumor subtype that we discussed previously, and again are more commonly located in the cortex. At the bottom, you will see that even with pediatric glioblastoma, the subtypes are very distinct among each other in terms of biologic alterations. What was also interesting about this data is that it was just published this year. This is a graph similar to the last, um, showing again how distinct the varying subtypes of pediatric glioblastoma are from a frequency, location, prognosis, genetic, and even epigenetic pattern. I wanted to include it as well as it too was recently published within the last few years and is consistent with the data presented on the preceding slide. When looking at adult glioblastoma, in the past decade, we have found that the epigenetic alteration or silencing of a gene called MGMT or O6-methylguanine DNA methyltransferase is of significant prognostic value. This gene, which functions as a DNA repair enzyme, normally works to reverse any DNA damage that's caused by an alkylating agent. When methylated, it no longer does this and therefore is more susceptible to damage. Here you can see the overall survival of adults with glioblastoma based on their methylated MGMT status. The risk reduction here was 55% in those with a methylated MGMT promoter gene with a median survival difference of 22 versus 15 months. In pediatric glioblastoma, MGMT methylation again affords prognostic significance as shown here. However, it's much more rare when compared to adults. Here, the study, the N is 10. And there is marked variability among the different subtypes. For the tumors that do show methylated MGMT uh, status, this was more common in the IDH mutant tumors that we see in older children or adolescents. Lastly, before moving on, I just wanted to take a minute to show just how different glioblastoma in infants is compared to older children. We saw a few slides back that histologically, infant glioblastoma looks the same as it does in older children and even adults. However, the molecular alterations are very distinct and are described in the literature as being low-grade glioma-like. Here I have marked the low-grade glioma-like tumors that are seen in infant glioblastoma. These tumors, which are diagnosed around the age of one, have an overall very favorable prognosis with a three-year survival of 90%. We discussed earlier briefly some of the characteristics of glioblastoma from a histologic and radiologic standpoint, and now I'd like to dive in more deeply. So I would like for you to look at panel A in the top left outlined in red. This is a post-contrast CT of a patient with glioblastoma. As you can see, these tumors are irregular and heterogeneous with central necrosis, and yet also very distinct and well-demarcated on imaging. Often, as seen in B, you will see a ring-like enhancement surrounding the tissue, which is peritumoral edema. Histologically, you will see the four hallmarks that constitute a high-grade glioma diagnosis. These include hypercellularity, nuclear atypia, pseudopalisading necrosis, and vascular endothelial cell proliferation. Additionally, these tumors have a very high MIB labeling index, meaning they're highly mitotically active. Two radiologic phenomena that are unique to high-grade gliomas in both adults and children are the concepts of pseudo-progression and pseudo-response, the first of which is depicted here. The images here depict a 19-year-old with high-grade glioma. Looking at the top left, this is a post-contrast MR before radiation therapy. Moving to your right on images B and C, these depict follow-up imaging after radiation therapy and show an enhancing nodule with central necrosis and interval enlargement, respectively. In image D at the bottom left, you see a perfusion scan, which compared the cerebral blood volume within the lesion itself and the contralateral white matter, which revealed no elevated cerebral blood volume. This is consistent with pseudoprogression. Image F on the bottom right shows a follow-up image later on, that shows a less distinct lesion. Pseudoprogression can occur about three months after radiation therapy. If MR spectroscopy were to be done, there would be an absent choline peak within the lesion. Not shown here is the other concept of pseudo response, in which you can have complete non-enhancement of the tumor um, on MR as early as 24 hours after anti-VEGF therapy. So risk factors for pediatric and adult glioblastomas do show some similarity. Both show increased risk with history of therapeutic radiation for prior blood cancer like leukemia or other type of cancer. Additionally, there are many hereditary syndromes that also increase the risk for cancer in general. The histone-mutated tumors that we discussed earlier are unique to pediatric glioblastoma, whereas IDH-mutated tumors are more common in adults. Lastly, history of certain prolonged occupational exposures, like pesticides, increases the risk for the development of glioblastoma in older age. High-grade gliomas in general carry a very poor prognosis, although pediatric glioblastoma has been shown to have a better overall survival than that in adults. In general, the location of the tumor, the extent of white matter invasion, the size of the tumor, and the volume of surrounding brain edema all have significant prognostic value. Tumors that are located in a deep midline structure or within the brain stem that are unable to be resected. Tumors that have high infiltration into the surrounding tissues and are large with large surrounding paratumoral edema at diagnosis confer the worst prognosis. As mentioned just a short minute ago, pediatric glioblastoma overall has a better survival rate than in adult's, although it is still a dismal disease. However, there are many factors that improve survival and are outlined here. Children who are younger at diagnosis and are of female gender have a better prognosis. Those patients that present with seizures and lack any preoperative neurologic deficits also have a better prognosis. Other important prognostic features include tumors that at diagnosis are superficial and circumscribed with little surrounding edema and histologically lack central necrosis and have a lower mitotic index. <laughs> what you will see in the coming slides is that the degree of tumor resection combined with both chemo and radiation also afford the best prognosis. When looking at survival based on location, brainstem lesions off offer the poor survival as outlined by the purple arrow here. When looking at its survival based on molecular subtype of pediatric glioblastoma, there's even further distinction. Again, the H33K27 mutant tumors have the worst prognosis overall, with an overall survival of less than 5% at one year. This is marked by the purple arrow seen on the screen. IDH mutant tumors, however, which are more common, again, in older children, show the best prognosis as seen by the top red line. This image here, again, shows survival based on methylation subtype, but in particular, I wanted to outline the light tan line at the top and marked by the red arrow. This represents the low-grade glioma-like tumors that are seen most frequently in the infant population. Again, that survival is around 90%. Lastly, briefly I wanted to mention some of the other molecular factors that afford longer survival or better prognosis in pediatric glioblastoma. The first of two, IDH mutation and MGMT methylation status that we've already talked about. The third marker, which is also outlined in purple, TP53, if overexpressed, actually provides better prognosis. So how is glioblastoma treated? Remember that clinical trials in pediatrics are designed to compare a new therapy to that which is already considered standard of care. However, given the rarity of pediatric glioblastoma, there are very few trials out there that are specific to it and do not lump together the other high-grade gliomas and or older-aged patients. In fact, there is currently only one Phase three trial currently ongoing in the United States that is specific for pediatric glioblastoma. Phase three means that they have identified a drug that has been shown to have some efficacy and know, and they know the maximum tolerated dose. All other pediatric glioblastoma trials are phase one and two, meaning they're still trying to find out, one, if the drug or intervention works, and two, if it does work, what dose to give. We saw earlier that the extent of tumor resection is of significant prognostic value. <coughs> which is what is shown here in this graph, looking at progression-free survival. It has been found that patients who are able to, un, able to undergo gross total resection, which is defined as more than 90% of uh, tumor being able to be resected, have a better prognosis overall. Following surgery, patients begin adjuvant therapy with chemo-radiation. Radiation is standard of care in all patients older than three years of age and includes wide field margins with fractionated therapy over a five- to six-week period. While there is no standard of care in terms of chemotherapeutic agents, previous trials have shown that chemotherapy, when combined with radiation after gross total resection, is effective in increasing overall survival when compared to radiation alone. This graph uh, illustrates that. In adult glioblastoma, the significance of the MGMT methylation status is important and that it, again, confers a better prognosis overall. In 2005, there was a landmark study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed significant improved survival in patients who had MGMT methylated tumors and received temozolomide in addition to radiation therapy. This data point is highlighted by the top orange line and marked by the purple arrow. Patients in the study were randomly assigned into the listed categories. Temozolomide is an alkylating agent, and if you'll remember, that methylation of the MGMT gene makes it more susceptible to DNA damage due to an alkylating agent. The addition of temozolomide to radiation therapy in adult glioblastoma patients showed improved overall survival with a five-year overall survival in the temozolomide plus radiation treatment in a methylated MGMT status at 9.8% compared to just 1.9% in the radiation-only arm, which is shown in the light blue green line. Uh, Interestingly, if you look at the two bottom lines, patients whose tumors did not show methylated MGMT status also had improved survival with temozolomide. As such, the study established a new standard of care in adult glioblastoma, with all patients receiving temozolomide plus radiation therapy, regardless of methylation status. Despite how devastating and aggressive the disease, treatment for glioblastoma, I've uh, come to learn, is relatively easy. Temozolomide is an oral medication that's taken daily, and bevacizumab, which is the anti-VEGF drug, is given once every two weeks. When comparing management between pediatric and adult glioblastoma, you can see highlighted in in the middle are the similarities among each. While temozolomide and bevacizumab are given in pediatric patients with glioblastoma, Neither have been shown to confer any survival benefits when compared to the historical controls of nitrosuria-based chemotherapy like low musting. However, because of its aggressive nature and the fact that there really is no standard of care, all agents are employed. In adults, there are many trials out there currently looking at vaccine and dendritic cell therapies for adults with glioblastoma. However, for now, I would like to just mention that these are treatment options. Many adults will also have an implanted chemotherapy wafer with carmustine placed at the time of resection. So by and far, brain and CNS tumors confer the highest mortality rates of all of the cancer types in all age groups, ages zero to 14 years of age. This is represented by the red triangles and outlined by purple boxes on the graph here. Furthermore, high-grade gliomas, represented by the large red section, again outlined in purple, have the highest total deaths per histologic grade than all other primary CNS tumors. When looking at mortality based on site, brainstem lesions, which are often, which are not operable, also confer the highest mortality, as seen by the black section here in this chart. Circling back to this slide that we saw earlier in the presentation, looking at the overall survival trends of pediatric patients with ALL over a 40-year period, you'll remember that by the late 1990s, survival in these patients increased to well over 80% at five years. Despite these advances in leukemia survival, there remains significant morbidity related to treatment effect, especially leading to cardiopulmonary disease earlier in life the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study that we saw earlier published data on just this. Overall, there is a loss in life expectancy of approximately 10 years in five-year childhood cancer survivors based on the U.S. general population. And 25% of these patients are expected to die of either late recurrence or of late effects secondary to cardiopulmonary disease. Unfortunately, there has not been the same improvement in survival in pediatric patients, specifically with high-grade glioma and glioblastoma. This graph shows the 1-, 5-, and 10-year relative survival rates for pediatric high-grade glioma from 1973 to 2011, each labeled next to their corresponding data point line. And in that 40- to 50-year period, despite learning more and more about the disease, survival rates remain dismal and stagnant. While well, it looks like that we have not made any advances for pediatric glioblastoma as we have in other cancer types, including leukemia, in the past five to ten years we have learned a great deal more about pediatric glioblastoma. I believe the future is bright and that as we continue to learn more and understand better the underlying molecular changes, this will allow us to develop new targeted therapies. Before ending, I wanted to highlight an ongoing trial currently being run by NCI and COG called the Pediatric MATCH trial, which stands for Molecular Analysis for Therapy Choice. In my research, I found this flyer for the recruitment of patients with solid tumors, including brain tumors, um, being recruited for tissue analysis of over 160 genes that could be potential uh, targets of what's called precision medicine. And this is something that I certainly see um, uh, in the future for pediatric oncology. So when I first thought about researching and presenting on pediatric glioblastoma for my grand rounds, it was in the setting of realizing that there had to be advances in improved survival in the 20 years since Greg's passing. (laughs) And yet what I learned was that the incidence and mortality rates for pediatric glioblastoma have not changed at all in the past 20, even 50 years. However, although it appears as though we have not made any advances, in the past 5 to 10 years alone, there's been explosion of new data as we learn more and more just how complex pediatric glioblastoma is. We are now able to break tumor tissue down and examine it on a genetic, epigenetic, and even molecular level, Realizing that those tumor, though these tumors may look similar under the microscope, they are much more complicated and diverse than previously thought. This is where the future lies. When interviewing for fellowship last fall, I met dozens of incredible researchers and scientists who have dedicated their lives to working behind the bench, working tirelessly to better understand the underlying genetic and molecular makeup of a particular cancer, and then working to develop a specific and targeted therapy. This is what gives me hope. Hope that as we learn more and come to better understand how pediatric glioblastoma behaves, we can develop more drugs and therapies that target those specific molecular changes. We all hope that one day glioblastoma will be a curable disease. All children deserve to live happy, healthy, and full lives. And I am confident that one day all children with cancer, especially glioblastoma, will be able to achieve this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> as far away as possible. So, I think you mentioned that overall for pediatrics, the um, survival is better than in adults. Um, and I noticed that the IVH within pediatrics actually has a better diagnosis, but yet that's sort of more adult like. And I'm wondering do you think that, that sort of better survival comes all from that infant group that has the lower type or? Because when you break it down, it looks like their survival is abysmal, and I, I'm surprised it's better than adults because it looks like it's – there's actually – even if you add the it doesn't help, and they don't have that, like, methylation bonus. So I, I was wondering if that was – the infant group was skewing it? or
1: I think that very well could be. And in, in the problem, as I mentioned before, is that there are not a lot of – there are all of the studies group high-grade gliomas together. So even though a lot of this data I did present specifically for glioblastoma, it's more for high-grade glioma in general. And, um, you know, I think that over time, as we start to learn more and more about the genetic molecular makeup that's so different from these tumors that, uh, you know, likely I think they'll probably be maybe even reclassified in the future, um, in which, and more studies will show um, more accurate data.
0: And when do you think they start to become more adult? Like, when, when do you become an adult when it come, like, comes to your glutathione? Is it just, you just have to look at the tissue and find out? Because that's always the question, like, when do you become more adult-like? Because then you
1: would approach, it sounds like maybe the therapy is not particularly different, but. Yeah, and I think um, one of the kind of main things I learned from this is, yes, the therapy is, um, The temozolomide and bevacizumab, for example, is not shown to have any benefit, really at all, in pediatric glioblastoma, and yet we still use it because we don't have a standard of care for chemotherapy. It's such a a dismal disease and so aggressive Um, that's, you know, we kind of just throw everything uh, on board.
0: Hey, that was a great presentation, Ashley. I learned, when we did our uh, practice run, I learned so much about, like, when Deb and I were in residency together, we didn't know anything. (laughs) Like Just the amount of information that's really exploded over the past few years. Um, Obviously, there's, as you pointed out, there's such heterogeneity in the the, um,
1: types of glioblastoma that affect kids. Can you tell me a little more about the clinical trials that are available? You talked about one, but it seems like It'd be so hard to study because there aren't that many patients and there's such heterogeneity. So, how, tell me a little bit more about the public trials that are available. Yeah. Um, so, I didn't uh, kind of after talking a little bit with um, some of my chemo colleagues and knowing that um, sometimes the trials that are listed, even on the um, clinical trials website, aren't always like great studies or legit studies. <laughs> Is I didn't kind of really um, I didn't look into it much more basically. any other questions
0: so um, I want to give Ashley one big more round of applause but before that I want to highlight something in our program um, I'm taking advantage of having a microphone um, that, that Ashley was actually really instrumental in starting so if you don't know when you walk past Kelly Rose's office we have what we now call the wall of awesome um, and this is something that I think we we as a program have talked lots about positivity and making sure that we're giving positive feedback and sort of the kudos that everybody deserves on a regular basis and Ashley may not realize this but she's a secret she's always been a secret emailer and she'll, she'll shoot you an email and say I worked with this intern overnight and she was you know he or she did this great thing um, so this summer Ashley sent me an email and along those kudos wall and, and it was basically saying we should be giving more kudos, nicely and, and <laughs> publicly. So that was the impetus for the Wall of Awesome. And every quarter, we total up all of the awesome kudos that people get. Um, and I think it's very apropos. Usually we do this at noon conference. Ashley's in the pick you though, so you never know if she can make it to noon conference. But Ashley is this quarter's winner of the Wall of Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> office I didn't bring it down <laughs> okay. because it sits it's in charge of the prizes um but I also threw it out there there's boxes in clinic that you can swing by Kelly's office you can send me an email um if you happen to see a resident or a colleague anybody doing something really great we're trying to really sort of model this um I think, a really positive thing for all of us in the department to do. And so kudos to Ashley for a great Grand Rounds, and kudos for sort of pushing us to make a, some sort of public um, kudos opportunity. Um, and I welcome those emails from anybody. And it can be very basic, or it could in, or it could be sort of a much more complex situation. So congratulations, you survived your Grand Rounds. One more round of applause.